Welcome back to the End of Time Politics Show. And this is the third episode, if you're if you're still tuning in. But um, we have a recurring guest who hasn't been on the politics side of the podcast before, but he's been on the pod, the, the main podcast before. So, Leo, thank you for coming on. Yeah, recurring is a bit of a stretch. This is my second time, <laughs> uh, but I'm delighted you feel I'm important enough to deserve that label. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate you coming back on, and, and politics is, is our forte, I'd, I'd say, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm delighted to be here talking about this sort of issues. Um, uh, get a bit closer to the mic. Oh, apologies. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're all good. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you're still the you're still running the Young Greens. Not, uh, not quite anymore. I know uh, the leadership problems have been mostly resolved. So okay. I will be the union council officer for next year, uh, but it's going to be more of a power sharing arrangement, as far as I'm aware, next mm-hmm. year. Um, and we're all going to try and meet up at some point before the year starts. So yes, uh, join the Young Greens. They are they are <laughs> a very the best society UE has to offer. The political <laughs> ones. That is. No, that's brilliant. Oh, and I'll, I'll, I mean, we'll make sure to have you back on uh, to talk yeah, about the, do, what do. the Young Greens are yeah, talking do. about this we year. We're doing a, well, yeah, I don't want to get too much into it because I don't want to derail this podcast to promote my society, but we are <laughs> doing a House of Commons trip next, uh, I believe it's October. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're up for that, I've been to the House of Commons before. It's a, you know, it's cool. Yeah, before. it's very cool. Um, I went a couple, I yeah. went a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. I, that's pretty good. But yeah, if anyone, if you are a UEA student listening to this, um, I'm assuming there are at least a few of you <laughs> going to the House of Commons one day. Uh, please do uh, let us know. Thank you. Yeah, so let's get right into the the topics of today. Um, so I think this this uh, this episode of the politics show we're going to talk we're going to talk about all sorts. We'll talk about Israel. We'll talk a bit about Spain. And we'll talk about Ulez and the the by election that happened there and all the controversy that happened there. You know, so there's a lot to get through today. Yes, <laughs> I can't wait. This has actually been quite an interesting week for politics and um, not in a incredibly depressing way. Yes, I mean it's depressing, <laughs> but not depressing yeah no i get that so we'll get right into israel so just for a bit of background if nobody really knows what's going on in israel so in in israel it's a parliamentary democracy and right now the the ruling gov uh, ruling government led by benjamin netanyahu <laughs> what a man he's trying to he's a very colorful character he's a very colorful character and has moved around po- uh, politically for the past few years but essentially he wants to disrupt and o- completely overhaul the balance of power between the judiciary as well as parliament. So can, the, the Knesset is a single is in the U- Israeli parliament. There's only one. There's only single one house. house. Yes, single, single house. house. And they have tremendous amounts of power. And the only real mechanisms for kind of re- minimizing or kind of stopping the government from overreaching its bounds is was through the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court. And it's quite interesting because Israel does not have a formal constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not like the UK where they at least have a history of constitutional motions and laws they can, sorry, that <laughs> <laughs> uh, they can draw back on. Um, because like Israel is a very unique country. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to find the right words here without <laughs> insulting anyone. Um, <laughs> no, um, it's um, because the, the founders of Israel, they elected not to form a formal constitution because they could not agree on the important things um I, again without getting too yeah. much into the history of israel uh, so they've been working with this sort of uh provisional constitution it's like an ad hoc yeah constitution. Ad hoc constitution, yes, so there's no clear protocol for how this matter ought to proceed so mm-hmm. you are amending the supreme court which is one of the you know the judicial pillar of government yeah um and it's sort of a as you said it's sort of an arm wrestling competition between the um the parliament and the and the supreme court and because there's no constitutional protocol it's not clear who has the authority to decide who does what. Yeah. But the Supreme Court, it's their right to be able to veto this according mm-hmm. to their current powers. But whether or not they would veto this, which would limit their powers, that is the heart of the constitutional crisis. Mm-hmm. Because if they did, 
it could prove very, very nasty, especially considering some of the people Netanyahu is in power with. Exactly. And it would be kind of, not funny, but it would be kind of interesting. <laughs> no, it, it, yeah, it would be <laughs> it would kind of interesting to see. Funny. Yeah, to see how, okay, let's say Netanyahu, I mean, they voted it through, they voted for the legislation to say, okay, we're taking away the Supreme Court power. Yeah. But then the Supreme Court vetoes that. I want to see how yeah, that, again, again, what happens. This is, this, is, this is like, again, like politics. You, I mean, from my personal experience, uh, the only reason I've been able to follow politics this long is you have to try and find the funny side in yeah. those situations, no matter oh, how bleak it seems to be. And this one, yeah, it's constitutional football. They're kicking it back and forth. Exactly. Uh, because I believe that the Israeli parliament has about to go on summer recess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the Supreme Court has indicated they won't deal with the question until they get back. So <laughs> that gives them enough time to reach some sort of compromise, ideally. Yeah. And the, the Israeli president is involved to try and broker some sort of kind of peaceful resolution even though so far it hasn't really worked yeah, out okay, but i yeah. think we just need to give more a bit more context to what's going on in israel so apparent uh, netanyahu's government has has lashed out at the supreme court to say okay they are overreaching they're becoming too political into the realms that's devolved to to parliament and supreme court like other the israeli supreme court like other supreme courts around in other democracies they act under the doctrine of reasonableness. So acting in which is reasonable and kind of yes. nice, kind of nice Again, to the to the people. A, but it's quite a vague legal term. Exactly. Reason, what is reasonable and what is unreasonable. Yeah. So it's yeah to try. It's a, it's a doctrine to try and just to, to see whether or not the government can justify their intended objectives and targets and whether or not constitutional rights can be balanced within that. So it's it's ve- it's fairly complicated if you go into the the legal definitions of it. But it's it's a very it's a full on crisis right now, isn't it? It's a full on crisis. <laughs> yeah, but, and there is not seem to be any clear resolution because, so if assuming the Supreme Court, the, the, you know, the, the ball is currently in both courts at the same time because mm-hmm. you know both sides have to do something. Yeah. Because you can be you can be you know again I'm not a constitutional lawyer at all, mm-hmm. uh, but it's I believe it's fair to say you want to amend that reasonableness clause without scrapping the Supreme Court's power altogether. Yeah. Because it is quite vague and ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've also got the added cataract, um, added um, feature that um, who would, uh, in Israel, uh, the council that elects the Supreme Court mm-hmm. just judges are mostly dominated by lawyers and bar association officials and not by politicians. Yeah. So I've got, I've got the list here. So yeah, the current system is yeah. of nine members of a committee Three of them are uh, current Supreme Court justices. Two representatives of the Bar Association, mm-hmm. so who represent lawyers. Mm-hmm. Two are members of the Knesset, so the Israeli Parliament, mm-hmm. and then two are ministers. Mm. So that's two governmental ministers out of how many in total? The cabinet is maybe twenty, mm. something like that. So they want what they what they're planning to do now is to change, as, as well as um, reduce the amount of power the Supreme Court has, is to change the system to change the current way of it, as you said, to changing the way Supreme Court justices are appointed. Mm-hmm. So that I, I got the proposed uh, like uh, committee here and it's pretty, yeah. it's, okay, it's, because, it's yeah, crazy. Because, you know, it's in exchange for the Supreme Court keeping their power, the government has a much larger say in nominating who gets to sit on the court. That would be, exactly. that seems like the sort of compromise that, you know, this is saying that a good compromise leaves everyone unhappy because mm-hmm. yeah, the Supreme Court lose a lot of their power, but that won't be. Until, I'm not sure what the rules are around retirement in the Israeli Supreme Court. Obviously, in the US, it's nominally for life. Yeah, um, I'm not quite sure what it is. Uh, but even still, it will take a while for that effect to sort of bleed through, assuming, you know, 
half the court doesn't kill ever dead in the next few months. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, I hope not. I mean, that's not he's, he's not that desperate, hopefully. Hopefully um, not. But um, as you said, he's got some pretty crazy and yes, uh, yes. Cr- like pretty extreme people in his cabinet. Yeah, I'm assuming you've got the list of his government partners. Um, some of so them, I'll, I'll yes. Let, I'll, let you, um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you fill in the blanks here. So we got um, the finance minister and I think not the defense minister, but the transport minister. And the uh, the minister who runs the home affairs, they've both been quoted of saying <laughs> that they uh, some of them are belonged to Jewish terrorist organizations. One, uh, some have uh, um, kind of offered and propagated that Israel go and just conquer everything of the West Bank. <laughs> yeah, so they've been called ultra nationalists. Yeah, um, that perhaps doesn't quite do them. That does the this group of people justice um it's like nationalism as a is, you know as a label differs from country to country mm-hmm. the specific was, was israel is a, got a, quite a fascinating demographic of people mm-hmm. obviously the majority of them are you know religious jews we've got secular jews israeli arabs and the like um and because the is a single tier house mm-hmm. uh, that you know one of the problems with that is that it could be you know you have the tyranny of the majority yes a majoritarian system you know that could be very bad for the minorities within israel oh definitely and there's already that perception or that reality that Palestinian uh, Israeli citizens are under don't have the same equal standing under the law. There's this there's that debate going on in Israeli society as well as the treatment of Palestinians in West Bank and um, in the occupied territories of uh, Jerusalem and in Gaza as well. So it's a very very complicated issue. Yeah. And it's and as you said, it's a battle pretty much between fundamentalists and ultra ultra zionist nationalists and a, the secular part of israel yeah, and that's why it's so important to understand the unique challenges israel is facing because of the unique characteristics of its population and mm-hmm. its politicians it's not quite that i mean obviously you, you have you know certain societies and political systems are more religiously influenced than others but in israel mm-hmm. it's this fascinating combination of you know politics and you know secularism and you know and religious participants so it's really interesting to keep an eye on uh, but yeah, if you, if you are a Palestinian, um, I think a lot of commentators have said this is the most um, nationalistic, right-wing Israeli government in living memory. So um, this is this is probably only going to get worse for them. Mm, definitely, and I think I find it fascinating that I mean we've seen there are millions of people protesting for like around yeah, twenty six yeah, weeks, I mean, yeah, and it's yeah, it's, and it's insane. Like trade unions are threatening to go on strikes. Doctors, um, yeah, yeah, thousands of military reserves have said they're not going to you know take up arms when they call to it because you know and it's interesting this could be you know Netanyahu I doubt he wanted this to be the issue that, that dominates his current term mm-hmm. but it's transformed to something that's out of his control and people of all over are just uniting around it and it's a lot of people I mean a lot of people have see, ha, see it as a fundamental attack on Israeli identity like is what what is what is Israeli identity is it we're going to become an, a Zionist nationalist ultra radical kind of perspective or are we going to be a secular tolerant yeah. and uh, it's it's a bit oh it's a <laughs> bit similar to the culture wars going on in America it has some similarities but there's a central ide- uh, there's a central idea that Israeli uh, national I, I, Israeli identity is under threat yeah i think the main difference if you're comparing it with the culture wars in America is that there is no Palestinian equivalent in the United States. That's true. You know, the victims of the culture wars in the United States are United States citizens. Mm-hmm. The victims of the Israeli culture wars, if you want to call them that, that's true. Is mostly going to be Palestinians. It's and yeah, it's it's a very dangerous path. And Israel and 
the and the Palestinians because Pal- Palestine does not exist <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's let's not open that kind of. Words. I mean, we can. Yeah. This is this yeah. is the politics <laughs> show, but <laughs> but so tech. Um, so if anybody doesn't really know how Israel is kind of geographically operate at the moment, so there's the main part of Israel, and then there's there's the West Bank, mm-hmm. which is controlled not by Israel by the Palestinian Authority, mm. and then you have Gaza. Gaza is, <laughs> it's not run by the Palestinian Authority, yeah. rather a prescribed terrorist organization yeah, named it, Hamas. It's complicated, <laughs> but Hamas is technically a wing of a larger Palestinian political movement mm-hmm. uh, that yeah, has dubious legal recognition. But yeah. Dubious, um, more yeah. like terrorist organization. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, um, yeah, yeah, and obviously you have the state of Palestine, which is recognized by a handful of states worldwide. Um, but no geographical or kind of... No agreed upon geographical status no, that, or no, government. No, yeah. Um, and again, a, a solution now seems further away than ever. Plus, you know, people like to bandy around the whole two-state solution. Um, and that's probably the most realistic assessment of the scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, given the current crop of Israeli leaders at the moment, it seems very unlikely that the lot of Palestinians will improve at all. Because, you know, why would they go to the negotiating table when the opposition believe that the Palestinians you know have no right to be there like, yeah again this is like you can you could say that that's, that's no no i completely compl- understand that Israeli um governments but this particular crop of politicians you know it, it's almost vitriolic mm-hmm. some of their statements towards palestinians so why on earth if you're a palestinian leader would you say we're going to negotiate with these people because you know you, you must know that nothing good come up come come of it and exactly and i think the e- the essence of a deal is that both of them both sides want want an agreement. I don't think any of them want. There's no. There doesn't seem to be any sort of compromise from both sides. And we go back to 2002 and 1997. The I think it was the Oslo Accords. I know the, yeah, I know the ones you're talking so about. So yeah. where I think the state of Palestine was offered the entirety of the West Bank and Gaza to run. At at the time, the Palestinian leaders said no completely. Mm-hmm. And now I think there was, if there was any sort of, yeah, any sort of negotiation, it would never go. Twenty, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah, but it's 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 fairly complicated, and this this is a running this has been a running issue, and I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon without meaningful compromise from both sides. And as you said, the current government with Netanyahu, who who wasn't always this radical. No, he, but he, it's not necessarily he's become radical. It's that he's a political survivor, and. He's That's the forced, point. He's, Survivor. Yeah, he's gotten in bed with some very nasty people, and by you know putting his foot down with the proposed judicial reforms, he's shown he, you know at the pressure of his ultra nationalist allies, mm-hmm. he shows his value. His he he no, he's shown he values his position as leader more than Israel's um, democratic um, idea, idea ideals. So he, you know he's revealed that he's you know he's nakedly showing his self interest as opposed to what's best for the country. So. He gave a state of the state of the union yeah. address a couple of days ago, and I think that was very funny. I haven't seen that. I probably, what, did, what did he say? <laughs> he was just essentially, "This is this is a good thing for Israel. <laughs> it's a good thing for us. We need to move forward. We can't think about the past." Like, <laughs> <laughs> hmm. think about the past like, last week. Like, yeah. <laughs> we're, I think I saw a stati- uh, like a comparison that if this um, if you translate the scale of the protests going on in Israel, it would be. 13 million people in England on protests in central London complaining about the government. I think the Iraq war protest, which is the largest organized protest we've had in this country, that was over a million, Mm -hmm. but nowhere near 10 million. No, nowhere near what's going on. This is a massive and we're we're not hearing too much about it from the mainstream news. No, we're not. Which is kind of this is surprising because the mainstream media like to talk about Israel. <laughs> yeah, I mean they they like to talk about well, I, I I suppose they do, but perhaps not in a way that, and I don't want to put on my tinfoil hat here, but in a way that undermines Israel's um, ability to defend herself. Let's say. 
No, I think that's I think that's a fair assessment. I think that's a fair assessment. So I mean, yeah. So just military reservists, as you said, are going on strike. Doctors and nurses are, go- are threatening to go on strike. So it's the country's coming to a standstill, and I don't think we can overestimate how how dire and how fundamentally the co- the the state of the country is under threat here, mm-hmm. and people don't know where to turn to with the Supreme Court gone. Who's yeah, that's like the last check against this government, which is you know as we've said the most radical, you know, the most ultra nationalistic in recent memory. So yeah. without, th- again, but you've got the legal argument that, you know, the whole idea of reasonableness is an unfairly vague clause introduced and that gives the Supreme Court very arbitrary degrees of power to clamp mm-hmm. down on what they feel is not reasonable. Yeah. So what do you do? What do you like, do? This, this is the worst possible government to have this sort of constitutional crisis because you know they're going to exploit this if, yeah. if they can push it through. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's pretty so, yeah, dire. I, I suppose, we, you know, I suppose like, again, I feel like what we've come to the conclusion is that you know, it's just going to get worse. There's no obvious solution. There's no obvious solution. There's no obvious solution, but the fact that so many people are on the street showing that Israeli identity means something, the country that they they represent or have some affinity to means something, and that they're on the streets protesting, showing their dissatisfaction, and that the president's getting involved in in politics, Mm -hmm. and that's not something that usually happens in Israel. So I think... There is, there is hope. There is definitely hope for a, a, an agreement. Yeah, I will, without, you know, just without dampening those spirits, but also providing something of a reality check, it is worth noting that the current Israeli government it is a democracy. They mm-hmm. were voted into power legally. They were, yes. Constitutionally. So, you know, however, million, however many people are on the streets protesting, you've got to remember that even more old people voted for these guys. Mm-hmm. You know, even though it's a, it's a coalition government formed with some fringe uh, national Far, groups. far right. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, you know, they, they got nowhere near a, a, plurality, plurality, a majority of the votes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Netanyahu, he got enough to form his coalition government. Yeah. So he does have some degree of popular backing. Although, because this is such a radical step, you could argue he's alienated a lot of his potential supporters. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we'll see. I think I think we'll end it. We'll end the Israeli discussion there because I think we'll we'll leave it in a in a sense of balance. There's a bit of hope as well as there's a bit of there's a bit of frustration and yeah. kind of <laughs> forces yeah, against yeah. the way the so, we the will of the people. Uh, so, yeah. So after the parliament comes back from the summer recess, um, the situation may have been salvaged. If not, it's going to get very interesting very quickly. Definitely. So I think we'll move on to another interesting case in politics. We'll we'll bring it to be. Uh, to the domestic. We'll bring it to the UK. We'll talk about <laughs> ULEZ. We'll talk about oh ULEZ. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> so if anybody doesn't know what ULEZ is, it's called, it's the ultra low emission zone in London. So everybody's heard of the congestion charge in London. Everybody's heard of that. And above, around that, there used to be an ultra, there still is, but it, it used to be that only certain uh, vehicles were allowed to go in if they, me- if they met certain environmental emission standards. And now that is expanding to the the greater London area, if I, I got that right? Yeah, greater London, for the, I mean, I'm assuming most of our listeners are UK-based, uh, but for those who weren't, greater London is encloses an area outside of the city of London proper. Mm-hmm. So it's the surrounding areas and counties. Um, so for example, uh, towns like Uxbridge, uh, famously Boris Johnson's old stomping ground, mm-hmm. and that is part of greater London, even though it's you know not near the city centre at all. Yeah, so it's right at the edge of like the, the circular uh, M2, uh, M25? M25, yeah. So I can't remember, because it, it goes some way into the... Um, the home counties, which are the counties that surround, you know, London. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the exact border off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, the point is that, you know, part of what we like enjoy about London as Britons is that it has a fairly good public transportation system. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the reason why the, um, you know, the congestion SARS and the low emission zone was introduced in central London to begin with is because, you know, with such strong public transportation links, 
didn't need necessarily need to have a car in order to commute to work or, or go about your daily life. And there's a lot of cycle routes and yeah, all sorts yeah, of Yeah, it's very cycle friendly city. Uh, but sadly, and this is you know this is why it's such a polarizing issue. Uh, so many of the regions in Greater London do not have access to such strong public trans- transport links as people do in the city centre, which is why it's prompted so much backlash. Because yeah, people um, rely on cars and and just vehicles in general just to get around, get to work, yeah. get get uh, drop their kids off at school. So it really is comes. To the fundamentals of how certain people live. Yeah. I mean, before we go any further, uh, do you have a car? I don't have a driver's license yet. Oh, neither do I. I was <laughs> sort of hoping we could, you know, provide different insight. But no, <laughs> no, I mean, I do not have a driver's license, nor have I ever driven a car before. So I suppose our perspective is fairly limited, but I still feel like we can, you know, address some of the key points. Oh, definitely. And what is it? Um, so the ULES, in order, so the you need to pay a charge. If, you do, if your car doesn't meet certain emission standards you need to pay a flat fee of £12.50 a month and I think one of the the backlash against it is that this predominantly attacks people from social uh, lower socioeconomic yes, backgrounds it's, regre- it's effectively a form of regressive taxation which you know um, especially since we're going through a cost of living crisis a lot of people are opposed to and what is it? I, I heard Rory Stewart. You, have you heard of Rory Stewart? Yes, I listened to his podcast, yeah. Buster Campbell. Yes, and so I he's, think he's a very interesting person. He is a very interesting person. But he 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 brought he said something that really resonated with me. That all forms of environmental taxation or environmental measures are at first always going to impact the poorest of society first, Sadly, always yeah. because yeah, uh, is it tax emissions taxation and all sorts of other measures brought in predominantly attack the people from poor backgrounds. Oh, sad, this is the reality, sadly. Yes, I partially agree with that. I mean, he's obviously much more informed than ever, I, you know, than I could ever hope to be. But from my perspective, I think, yeah, if you're going to address stuff like, you know, um, greenhouse gas emissions from cars and vehicles, naturally, you know, the weight is going to fall mostly on people with these sort of vehicles. And mm-hmm. that's mostly going to be people from lower income backgrounds. And uh, electric cars and hybrid yeah. cars, they're I mean, very expensive. Yeah, I, that's a, yeah, that's the thing. And even, but yeah, and with the, you know, the current sort of green policies, such as they are by the government, and mm-hmm. that's something I think we'll talk about later, how yeah. so that's sort of gone back on that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, but the green policies as they exist at the moment in the UK, yeah, they disproportionately will affect and do affect lower income families. Uh, but the sort of, you know, larger structural change that is being called for by the Green Party and other proponents of climate reform, uh, you know, is targeting the rich, targeting, mm-hmm. you know, property owners, people who owe, like, for example, you know, like the cruise ship industry produces as many, as much CO2 emissions as, you know, millions of cars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the cruise ship industry, it's it's nice, but it's not essential, I suppose. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been on the cruise ship. No, I have not. No. I've, I'm, I fly a lot, so yeah. that's I'm probably as bad. <laughs> I suppose so. Again, but again, it's not necessarily the problem is, you know, economy class flights. It's private jets as well. Private jets. Um, and those are the ones that are making, you know, short 50-minute flights each where you could easily just go by car or public transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm in two minds about it. Um, because, yeah, the sad truth... Is, but again, it's worth reinstating uh, why this the, the UASE was introduced. It's because the air quality in London, mm-hmm. while not not as bad as somewhere like Dubai, for example, it's still pretty bad. It's I think the bad. estimate is like 4,000 Londoners yep. by a year. 4,000 um, a year, yeah. And from bad air. Mm-hmm. Air pollution-related complications. And then yeah, you we bring it to like a China, where I used to live. I remember when the air pollution was off the charts, yeah. when it went up like 700 on the scale. And you could not see, I could not, uh, like from where we are, we're, we're fairly like less than a meter away. Yeah. I could not see yeah. you. Yeah, we've had that in the UK. We had the great smog of London back in, I think it was the 50s. It's... Um, so London air quality has actually improved remarkably since, you know, um, post-Second World War. 
Um, and we're, we're in danger of losing what we've gained because more people are living in London than ever before. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though we're more aware of the impact of air pollution, it's frustrating to see this level of opposition towards it. Um, but again, you have to remember, it's going to affect a lot of lower income people at a mm-hmm. time when, you know, every penny matters. Mm-hmm. They can't afford to either pay the charge or go out and buy a new car that complies with the regulations. So it's a very, very difficult situation. I think it's also important to give a bit of balance to, to say that the the trans, uh, the government uh, London Great Authority does provide like, it's like a scrappage scheme so yeah, for people from about, yeah. from lower economic backgrounds can trade in their car and I think they give a two thousand four thousand pounds it's still not enough yeah, to buy I, yeah, electric I car. Think part of the reason why there's been so much backlash is because they don't feel like the um the government is people feel like the government isn't doing enough to help you know mitigate the impact of this. So mm-hmm. for example, the uh, the scrapping scheme uh, that you mentioned. Um, there's no plans to expand that nope. in line with all the you know the new cars that will now be um, non-compliant. And I think it's all, yeah, it's also uh, worth mentioning that I think the tra- Transport for London said that nine out of ten cars will not be affected. That is that is uh, S- uh, Sadiq Khan's claim. Yeah. Um, opponents of the scheme are challenging that in court, so we'll have to see whether that holds up or not. Definitely, um, but I mean, from my, in my opinion, I'm happy Sadiq Khan has taken a, a, like a strong stance on this, yeah. and he's take he's he's taking the political cost from from losing uh, Labour losing that uh, that by election. But I think this is it is one place to stand, and if politicians <laughs> not making genuine tough tough stands on policy when they believe it's right. I think this is a great thing for leadership. I think this shows great leadership from Sidi Khan. Definitely. Unfortunately, the leader of the Labour Party seems to disagree. Um, oh, Keir Starmer. Yes, yeah, yeah, Starmer. You annoy me. I support you, but you annoy me. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah. Um, it's proved... I mean, t- to be fair, with this particular issue, I do understand his frustration because uh, the by-election, the recent by-elections a couple of weeks ago, yep. uh, Labour won two out of three. Um, and they, but the, the third one, that was the one which sparked this whole debate about you, Ellie, uh, the ultra-low ultra emission zone. ULES. ULES, I've sucked on ULES. And so effectively, um, Sadiq Khan and I can't remember the Labour candidate running in that seat were at odds with each other over ULES. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Starmer's realised this could potentially prove a, you know, it's not a major division within the party. But it's noteworthy enough that it could take attention away from how bad a job the Conservatives are doing and more towards Labour. Yeah, and it's funny how the the Conservatives turned that into a win. Yes, <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's so wait, we'll, we'll give some yeah. context. So yeah, the, there was ahead, a by-election yeah. in in Uxbridge where, as we said, Boris Johnson's old constituency constituency, where I mean, he resigned a couple of weeks ago after yeah. after uh, Partygate, pretty much, and yeah, lying to Parliament and all that. <laughs> but um, uh, so there was a by-election and. Yeah, everybody thought Labour was going to smash it because everybody hated Boris Johnson. Yeah, but I mean, then yeah. the Conservatives were very, very smart that they, they turned yeah. it into a debate, not on Boris Johnson's character and the Conservatives ruining the country at the moment, but rather yeah. <laughs> onto ULES. On yeah. And they pulled they pulled out a very tight win. I think it was only by a couple of hundred votes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was by no means a deciding, you know, I, I, again, but again, given the expectations going in, especially on the back of the local elections a few months ago, yeah, um, it wouldn't have been surprising if Labour got this in the bag, but they didn't, and now it's pro- promoted this, you know, major debate over ULES. And the bizarre thing is, I don't, you know, it, it seems quite unlikely if this is all um, connected, um, but around the same time, Sunat's recently announced expansions, uh, plans for expanding oil and gas drilling in the North Sea, mm-hmm. and it's almost like he's realised he he believes that the whole ULES debate has proved that there's a backlash against climate policy more generally and he's using now as the time to announce their scheme. I, I can't prove that, obviously. It's purely speculative. Uh, but I feel, feel like he's misinterpreting the facts because I, a lot of the British public do want action on the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. 
um, it's just ULIS in particular, as we've discussed, affects mm-hmm. disproportionately low-income families. And I th- that's uh, promoted a lot of backlash. That, no, you're completely right there. And what is it? He ordered, as soon as he announced that new licenses for oil and gas in the North yeah. Sea, he also announced a, tra- a ULES rev- a transport yeah. review. <laughs> and I, 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 have to, I have to say that that is a complete yeah. waste of money yeah. and waste of time because oh, yeah. he, he doesn't have the power to even change local council's ability to impose yeah, these situations. Yeah, which actually, yeah. Um, and... You at the same time you also announced expansion of um, carbon catchment and storage schemes. Have you heard about those? I have heard yeah, about them. Those are frustrating <laughs> because there is some actual. I mean, uh, do you familiar with what they do? Um, uh, just give a. The, I mean, I know a little bit, but give the listeners a bit of an overview of yeah, what so carbon was, capture yeah, so, is. So effectively, um, it's a way. So the um, you know greenhouse gas emissions. You know, by via oil because initially it was just brought in for natural gas, mm-hmm. um, but it's expanded to oil drilling as well. So greenhouse gas emissions produced by um, harvesting fossil fuels is I can't from the exact scientific process, but the carbon emitted is trapped and then stored. It's, um, I think it's stored underground, isn't yes, it? Yes, I believe so. Um, and there are some trial schemes, especially in Norway, which have proven they are effective. Uh, however, more recent data has showed that the vast majority of um, carbon carbon catchment and storage schemes are either non-viable or just very, very bad at doing their job. Because they, I mean, they they, they, do, they do what they, they say they do. They capture the carbon, but then they just keep it. It's still there. Okay, it still I mean, exists. Yeah, and, that, <laughs> and the ones that actually do capture carbon or as much, capture as much carbon as they're supposed to, those are the minority um, mm-hmm. minority schemes. Um, and it's just frustrating is the mindset behind it because it's partly a case of having our cake and eating it. You know, we get mm-hmm. to, we still get to have all our fossil fuels, uh, but we also get to avoid the, you know, the drawbacks of emitting CO2. Yeah. Um, uh, but it also shows that I feel I think I've um, read a piece about this in the Guardian that it's, uh, that CCAS is being used as a political prop. To, CCAS. Yeah. Um, carbon catchment. Sorry. That's okay. The, uh, I think I think that's the acronym. Um, <laughs> it's being used as a political prop to buy time for fossil fuel companies to continue their operations rather than taking meaningful climate action, uh, which is you know hardly surprising. You know, <laughs> it's, it's the evolution of climate di- denialism from straight up denial to promoting this sort of vaguely you know solid policy that sometimes works but there is not enough data to justify using that to replace actual you know mm-hmm. um climate action but i think i think we'll we'll bring it back to ULES and stuff yeah sorry sorry that was quite a tangent <laughs> no, there no no i think like, i think it's very important that we gave a bit of context to that but it does show that there are there is some different it's not as simple and it's not as not, not as black and white the environmental debate is because yeah. there are lots and lots of implications for every decision we make. Yeah, I completely agree. It's so so important for politicians to recognise the nuance involved in every political decision because you know ULES sounds like a good idea on paper and it probably is, but you can't just ignore the effect it will have on ordinary people. And it's we are a democracy, so <laughs> people's yeah. voices actually do matter. Yeah. It's not like in China or whatever you can just build whatever and um, do whatever policy and not listen yeah. to the actual impacts of the public. And that brings on. I mean, directly. Right? It's it's. It we talk about HS two. HS. Oh, yay! And um, um yeah. uh, so oh, okay, yeah. lights yeah. just flickered. But yeah. um, <laughs> so HS two is co- it's high speed two. So it's mm. implementing high speed rail from London all the way to Birmingham, Manchester, and supposed to be Leeds, but now that's cut. Yeah, but it might not even be going to London. Apparently, it might stop at Milton Keynes and just not go to London. <laughs> that's that's what I've heard recently. So the, <laughs> like, apparently, it was supposed water. to be finished in. Uh, 2045 is when or so, really? something like that like the the final final legs or 2039 it may be one of the two but honest it's been i don't yeah, think I mean, we're going to make ha, it have you got the total cost so far up on your little notes it's it says around 100 billion 
<laughs> it was supposed to be 13. <laughs> yeah. So it's got, you know, it, it's probably going to be 10 times over budget by the time it actually finishes. And yeah, public transport in the UK outside of the major cities is a problem. But mm-hmm. come on, guys. <laughs> like, you're not making a good, you're not making a great case here. China builds 60,000 kilometers of railway every year and we can yeah. barely make. 300. Yeah, you know, that with all recent you know, talk about anti motorist policies, I think maybe he's just recognizing that his party is not very good at building public transportation. No, <laughs> they are not. Bending to reality. They are not. Yeah. It's... Is, this, is this a completely conservative party project? Like, when did construction begin? I think it was made by Labour. I think. Was it started by Labour? Let me double check on that, but I'm pretty sure it was maybe like the end of Gordon Brown uh, or the end of uh, Tony Blair's uh, reign. Rain and power. <laughs> Wait, let's 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 get up on Wikipedia. Very trustworthy source. <laughs> um, so it was started. Okay, this is not helpful. Um, bear with us here. Just, That's okay. I think I think it's 2010. I think it's 2010. Yeah. So I think it was just at the start of um, the Conservatives, the coalition government. And yeah, so essentially it was supposed to be a high high speed rail link between London. And the the Midlands and supposedly the North, <laughs> but right. it's it's taking God knows how long. And a recent report by I think the the Inspectorate the, of Public yeah. Finances said it's becoming almost impossible to achieve now. Well, I think the, the guy in charge, the managing director, has just stepped down um, from running HST because he's you know he's lost the confidence of um, everyone else. So it's it's bizarre i think because hs2 of people have been banging this drum for about a decade now you know it's over budget it's you know it, it's gonna yeah it's gonna help grow the economy but the times worth, are like 100 billion no it's not and it's i think the the time differences between london and birmingham it's usually around two and a half hours three hours yeah. by train it's gonna reduce it to like one and a half i mean it is significant yeah. but i don't know if it would justify and ever yeah, pay yeah. back the costs it seems, that it will it seems to be a transparent attempt at a prestige project you know mm-hmm. it's like an attempt at a symbolic policy instead of an actual meaningful improvement in people's lives and it doesn't seem to be very thought out or planned because they <laughs> 13 <It's a> railway. <laughs> how difficult can it be yeah I'm, I'm not like a civil engineer or anything but like come on you're just, just putting it you're, stuff you're on ground <laughs> like a couple of direct, yeah but i think um that's that's where i don't know when i brought up democracy in the other time because obviously people can have, have the right to object they can stonewall a lot of councils and local communities, especially in the r- rural communities and countryside, have tried to stop uh, HS2 from building, um, taking down, going through uh, the countryside, the, the pristine countryside that they've described. So there is a lot of opposition in certain parts of the country, and the the benefits don't seem to be very real, mm. or doesn't seem to be reality to these people mm. who who are uh, opposed to. Uh, to building HS2 because they're going through going through countryside, going through underneath uh, historic landmarks. So it's, there are loads and loads of considerations, but it's taking too bloody long. <laughs> too bloody long. China's already built yeah, like, <laughs> how again, much. Like the C- you know, there's a lot you can knock the CCP for, like, and I'm all for banging the CCP. Oh, me too. When we'll have an to, episode when comes, on that. <laughs> yeah, when it comes to high-speed rail, like, the US could learn a lot from them. And this, oh. this is one of the... Like, Elon Musk, this is like, yeah, he's done a lot of bad stuff, but one of the really things I really don't like about him is that he is one of the few people personally responsible for you know the lack of u.s high-speed rail uh was like you know the whole the um here's a, oh what was it called again like the boring company yeah the boring uh, the company Hyperloop, the Hyperloop, Hyperloop, yeah, yeah. In, so, in la in la right yes, yeah. In, yeah in california so california were planning to expand their um well, expand perhaps isn't the right word like start building a um high-speed uh pu- public rail system mm-hmm. and elon musk comes along and says no don't do this help me fund my um hyperloop instead <laughs> um, and the hyperloop is as 
it's one of his another one of his bizarre like half-baked schemes um, let's see if it actually works out yeah um in that this was like i think 10 years ago in the meantime china has built how many you know miles worth of um, high-speed rail yeah uh california hasn't no <laughs> which which is a shame because you know it's a country that relies very very heavily on having a car to get anywhere at all it's part of culture yeah when well, i was just yeah. there and um you could public transportation in hawaii was actually it's the best in the u.s hawaii yeah, which is but, which is yeah. it doesn't say much it's it's basically the same level as norwich and yeah. norwich is not the best in terms <laughs> yeah. of public transportation yeah because like again and it's only the lower income people who um take public transportation yeah so again and it's weird because the um you know joe biden his nickname is amtrak joe whatever his nickname is because sleepy was, joe, sleepy <laughs> joe yeah. before he became an old a grumpy old man and um, he was called amtrak joe because um but because he got the train to and from washington every day mm-hmm. uh, but also because he was one of the few, as a result of this he was one of the very few politicians advocating for that sort of expansion of um public rail he hasn't done much of that in no, presidency he hasn't. he's had but... he's had a lot else to worry about and he you know may not be mentally all there at the moment yes i completely yeah. agree in that and yeah so it just shows that the climate uh, the climate the climate the response to the climate emergency is taking uh, has a lot of unintentional or not really thought out implications in trying to implement a lot of these policies in terms of high-speed rail in terms of ultra low emissions and kind of reducing our reliance on on fossil fuels it does yeah. a lot of implications for a lot of people and trying to incorporate all that into a sound yeah, policy yeah, is it's, it's, so, it's difficult. so difficult yeah i'm not sure if you saw a few years ago the um the south park episode with man bear pig um, i have not no <laughs> how, are you aware of a uh, man bear pig no it's their allegory for climate change <laughs> um so, so essentially that episode is a massive it was a few years ago now it's also a, their way of saying sorry to al gore because they sort of ripped oh. it to pieces um oh. <laughs> a, you know a while back i feel um, bad for you al gore. No, al-, al gore like he was like <laughs> on the radio show i co-host um live wire we did a whole episode on the uh, 2000 presidential election and why it's just the absolute worst <laughs> it's, it's incredibly funny but in the most demoralizing way yeah uh, anyway so yeah so um but the the idea is that mambo pig is this um He's part man, part bear, part big. It's this evil monster guy <laughs> who rocks into South Park one day and starts tearing up the town. Um, and he's, that's another group of climate change. Um, and the only way that the heroes are able to tame Man Bear Pig mm-hmm. is that um, he, the Man Bear Pig, says that if you want me to go away, you have to give up ice cream and Red Dead Redemption 2. <laughs> and they're like, no, no way. So they make a deal with Mamba Pig where in exchange for them not giving up that stuff, he will come back like 40 years later and tear them all to pieces. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So again, that's it's a good like, deal. Yeah, so South Park <laughs> isn't particularly subtle with a lot of what it's right to say, no. but it is effective. No, um, definitely. But yeah, and it, it is a pretty good episode. Um, so you recommend? But yeah, but, but yeah, I would recommend. <laughs> but the broader point I'm trying to make is that those sort of personal sacrifices, the freedom stuff like you know having your own car gives you, we you know that is the sort of stuff that's going to be the hardest to give up but also the most necessary if we want to actually make meaningful progress to the climate crisis mm-hmm. that being said it doesn't matter if everyone in norwich gives up their car and starts using the bus or cycling it won't make a difference if the real big polluters are held to account so that's the us yeah. china yeah, india yeah, yeah and that's something i brought up on my last appearance on the show I believe, you did where, yes you know there, it's no point us making these personal sacrifices like having showers instead of baths or cycling to work if the big polluters aren't held to account because, because otherwise it's yeah. for us it's like you know very little and it's as you said it's sacrificing your your luxury your standard yeah. of living for kind of an empty not yeah. an empty goal or an empty there's no point in a sense there's no point because my what if what, what my sacrifice is not going to do anything yeah and again, and again if you're a politician how on earth are you supposed to tell the electorate that they have to give up some of the most prized parts of living for the greater good. They're never going to get yeah, voted in. Exactly, yeah. How on earth do you communicate with people? Which is why, 
if you're the Green Party, you have to walk a very tight line between, you know, chiding people, but also saying, it's okay, we, you can still have pizzas and stuff. If, mm-hmm. you, if you know, it's, it's frustrating, um, but it is important. That's why I think it's important to make the distinction between net zero and zero, because, mm. you know, they're not the same. Zero no, emissions, zero emissions is simply impossible. Yeah. Um, and net zero is just yeah, we, making we, sure you... We breathe out CO2. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We uh, will die otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is just a very radical idea. Ooh, okay. 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 So you know what China is doing in the South China Sea, making their own islands yes. and that kind of stuff. Okay. I didn't expect the conversation to go. This so way. my idea is that we we find an area, find an area, and the countries of Europe or whatever, we all come together. We all make giant islands, fake islands, plant trees there, Just plant millions and millions and millions of trees. So that doesn't impact our ability to grow and develop and in, in terms of our own countries, but we make, we, we literally make our own, a separate own island, separate territory, separate land, and just put millions and millions of trees on there. And tr- hopefully that will try and reduce. That will take suck up the excess CO2. I mean, I don't know if it will work. I mean, a, a couple of things. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how serious you're taking <laughs> this. Um, that would require massive international cooperation. True. Um, also, I think the islands that China are constructing are just mostly concrete and rebar, and trees don't grow very well on those. But we don't need to make um, that. We don't need to make military yeah. bases also, out of them. Yeah, also, like, and, and again, this is like one of the fundamental arguments for renewable energy. We are going to run out of fossil fuels eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be now, it could be a hundred years. Like, we are going to have to transition to something more sustainable in the future. Um, be that nuclear power or you know, here, here. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the debate for another day, or <laughs> you know, more traditional uh, sources of sustainable energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it's like, again, planting more trees, don't get me wrong, it's a very good idea, and we should definitely do more of it. Uh, but I don't know if, if it solves a massive the problem. island is going to, yeah, sadly. And and again, this it's not like we, you know, we have vast patches of land that are, you know, arable, we haven't planted trees in, like the Amazon rainforest, you know. We lose a football field every minute. Yeah. Trees, like, just, you know, replant those, that would be nice. Um, but you know, it's a, it's a nice idea. It's but, a nice um, idea, but I, very I, unlikely. I, I think it will like, remain just an idea. <laughs> you know, if I become a politician, yeah. that's, the, that's the first thing I will try and negotiate. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. So yeah, after, yeah. we'll move on to the last topic of the day, and that is Spain. And I can't say I know a lot about what's going on in Spain. I know there was an election, and I think there was two elections because... Um, there wasn't a clear majority who yes. won, right? So yes. give us a bit so of a rundown the main, there. The main players in Spain, you have the, you, well, you had the um, the ruling PSOE Socialist Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had the PP Conservatives, and you have the party that I'm sure most people have heard of, which is Vox, which is the far-right party. Um, so the Socialists were in power, uh, even though they were manifestly unpopular, they did way better in the elections than anyone was expecting. Mm-hmm. The initial election, that is. So the Conservatives won the most seats, but they fell to a majority. So, okay. um, which is curious because um, normally in these cases, unlike the UK, Spain has lots of smaller parties. So, mm-hmm. if a you know if one of the if one of the two main political parties, so the Conservatives or the Socialists, if they are unable to form a majority by themselves, they can quite easily get one of these smaller parties to join them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because the Conservatives are around themselves with Vox, which is like a very Far right. divisive party, <laughs> none of the other smaller parties want to ally themselves with the Conservatives and Vox because see. they hate Vox. So it's sort of this very weird situation mm-hmm. where um, it means Spain will get the right-wing Vox party in government to form a coalition with the Conservatives, yeah. or they'll get quite a mix of left-wing parties to support Sanchez, who's the guy in charge of the Socialists. Because uh, from what I understand, that a lot of the politics of Spain, it usually flip, it usually like ping-pongs. Like for a couple, maybe a decade or five years or so, it would be the left-wing party, and then it would go over 
and switch over to the conservatives. So there, this is a weird kind of gap and un- somewhat unprecedented. Yeah, so it's quite interesting because this is, I think, the first major election in the world where the two major parties got much more the vote than they normally do. Because mm-hmm. recently you had the you know third parties encroaching on the vote share, but yeah. this time the Socialists and the Conservatives actually got quite a lot of the vote. Um, so yeah, at the moment, um, Vox and the Conservatives, this is this is the important detail, they wouldn't have enough by themselves to form a majority. But as, mm-hmm. we've, as I've said, um, nobody else really wants to join Vox because they're a bunch of, you know, right-wing psychopaths <laughs> well that's, that's that's the wrong word probably I, I, we, I shouldn't really be using that sort of pejorative but um, you, you get the idea we get the idea yeah it's, it's like you know it's not it wouldn't be unfair to compare them to UKIP you know no um, so it's not like so if the Conservatives and the, and the UKIP formed a you know an attempt at a coalition the Lib Dems wouldn't join no you know because you know they they disagree with UKIP on mm-hmm. quite a uh, lot on major yeah. on, on fundamentals yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so okay and so the how long were the the current uh, like the Sanche, uh, Sanche, the former prime minister of yeah, Sanchez was in? I can't remember. It's been there for a couple of years yeah, now, right? He, yeah, I, I can't remember the last. I think the last Spanish election was I remember hearing about Vox around twenty nineteen. Twenty nineteen. Okay. Um, again, don't trust me on that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Um, it's also quite good. You know, first, if you're like me and you're a bit depressed at the rise of right wing governments around <laughs> Europe, like Finland, for example, was a particularly depressing one. Um, and yeah, but no, it's good to hear that, you know, even though the left in Spain were not great at governing, you know, unemployment in Spain is a pretty big Youth unemployment is yeah. very, very high. Um, but the fact that they still remain in power at Vox's, well, not in power, but the fact they retained a lot of the vote at someone like Vox's expense is good news in my book. And it's, I think it's good news. And it, it turns the tide against some of the other, like the patterns we've seen across Europe, which is right-wing populism, as you said, growing. Italy, we have a, yeah. she's, she's a very, very... <laughs> mm particular and unique character and she was just with joe biden and they were talking about how a lot of her a lot of her stereotypes and perceptions are all wrong so that was very interesting yeah. by the u.s yeah. president but yeah in spain um so yeah so one solution could be a minority government under the conservatives without vox mm-hmm. but that would require the socialists to abstain um which is unlikely yeah unlikely uh, yeah. <laughs> um so yeah so yeah keep keep an eye on it but um on the whole it's it's it was an unexpected result, but in a good way. In a good way, yeah. and that's that's good because the la- I mean, all the topics we've just talked about are very, very controversial and <laughs> somewhat very, very. Yeah, yeah. I, I I hope that we both been able to represent them in a way that's fair and not particularly biased because I understand these are quite sensitive issues. So I promise you, we've done our best <laughs> to be. Oh, we've pretty, tried. Yeah, we, we've tried. <laughs> we've to tried. Be decently respe- well respectful, considering some of the people we talked about. Perhaps that's the wrong <laughs> word, but we try to give them the due that they deserve, yeah, um, and which for some of them is not very much. And because that's important. In our political discourse, making sure that we're balanced and give equal equal opportunity and equal equal voice for each each party to make sure people feel represented because ultimately people are being ostracized because uh, this is just my take on censorship and I, I believe censorship doesn't work because people are still going to have these views. They're not going to go away. They're mm-hmm. just going to go deeper and deeper underground and it will make people do some terrible things. So making sure that people are heard, but make sure they're challenged and held accountable for their voices. Mm. Uh, these are two big, very, very big parks, parts of having a healthy political discourse because in America, they don't have that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> We're slowly... Brexit almost turned us into the US, but I think we're slowly kind of I mean, getting out of it. You've got like GB News, which is... Nasty. Well, it's. I was going to say funny. It's if you want cheering up, like <laughs> some of their takes are really funny. Um, if you want to go on the YouTube channel, like it's, it's like... 
laugh out loud stuff. I rem- um, uh, I recommend listening to the the Australian dude. He's very he's very yeah. funny. <laughs> I forgot what his name yeah. is. Um, Mutton or something. But yeah, like they're, they're not very pop. They're popular enough that people know who they are, but they do. It's nothing like Fox News where they don't have a hold over a lot of the population. Uh, you know, they don't get massive viewership figures. Yeah. Um. And you know, we still have the tabloid press. We have the Daily Express and the Daily Mail and all of that lot. Um. But we still have the we still have the Guardian there. Always there. Yeah, I I suppose so. Um. Well, that, that's not like a fair comparison. <laughs> Guardian is like a respectable broadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what, what what would be the the equivalent? Hmm? What would be the equivalent to the the, the Daily Express? Oh, and the Mirror. The, the Mirror. That's the most obvious one. Oh, or the Canary as well. Even though that's not okay, as, yeah. it's like that's online only, I think. But I, I um, even think the Mirror is actually quite balanced to to some extent. Yeah, I suffi- again balanced. Beca- well, if you on some issues, on some issues, it depends. Like surely, even if you're quite anti-government, that doesn't necessarily have to make you partisan. It's just reporting the fact that the government has been shooting itself in the foot since day one. Yeah, you know? <laughs> um, exactly. And yeah, like Sunak, Sunak and Starmer both deserve. You know, I think if we do this again, they both deserve like a whole episode just comparing them because mm-hmm. you know I think the most recent polls that they're both about equal in terms of popularity, even though Labour as a party is more popular than Conservatives. Way, the I think they're yeah. like two. Uh, t- maybe 20, 20, points, 20 yeah. points ahead, yeah. yeah. But no, Star- Starmer and Sunak are both about equal. Um, and yeah, like Starmer is... Um, mm, hmm. like I, we'll talk about him I, another yeah, time. I, I, yeah, he's, uh, yeah but, um, as I said, Sunak, I feel, is making a big mistake if he's interpreting the ULEZ fiasco as mm-hmm. a broader shift against environmentalist policies. Yeah. And that is, I think, I think he is wrong. Yeah. Okay. I think we'll call it there. We've done. Yeah. I think this is around an hour now. Yes. Yes. So, thank you so much for your time. No. I was very happy to come on today. I hope I've contributed something. To oh, show. definitely. I mean, I think it was an interesting discussion. You guys just. Did, I mean, you. You don't have to just listen to my voice when we talk about politics. Yes. So maybe that's a good change. <laughs> <Hi>. <laughs> but yes. No. Thank you for coming on, and I hope you guys enjoyed listening to this. Poli- I know we talked about a whole bunch of events, but I think giving you an overview of Israel, the ULEZ, environmentalism. And a bit of Spain, I think it's uh, worth a conversation worth having, and I hope you l- hope you learn something. <laughs> yeah, so do I. Thank you so much for listening in. Um, I will let Nick finish us off because it's his show. <laughs> but yeah, thanks, thanks for having me again. It was great to be here. No, it's an absolute pleasure. So thank you for listening to the End of Time podcast, the politics show, and uh, I hope you hope you guys come back and listen again. I'll see you guys in a bit. Cool. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.